0: A few weeks ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who's an elder at a church, preaches on occasion, So I'm not sure, maybe once a month or something like that, and he was talking about, we're talking about preaching, and he asked me what I'm preaching through right now. I said, the book of Hebrews, I said I'm in chapter 12, and he said, ooh, the practical section, huh? Well, that's where we are. We are, ooh, the practical section. In fact, ever since chapter 10, verse 19, really, it's uh, it's turned Practical, like most every epistle we have in the New Testament, right? We want to figure out what it is we believe about God and how it is that we live and respond to that. And the book of Hebrews is no different. I want to read for you a verse in our text this morning. In fact, I want to back up verse 12 to, to catch the, the thrust of things. Chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal." For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would use this text to work a work in all of us. That we might realize that our Christian life is more than just us. It is us seeking others and seeking how we can strengthen and help and guard and watch over others so that they would stay on that path as well. So I pray you'd be with us and, and show us these things and really transform us. I just trust your spirit now to help us in these matters. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to begin this morning by testing your football knowledge. Okay, now there's some who are excused from this. Dirk grew up in Germany. He doesn't know football very well. Um, my wife's pretty well excused. She's, she's got... I don't know how to say it. She didn't grow up in a football house. You, the pargat's your excuse as well. All right, but we're going to start easy, okay? I'm going to be... Pretend I'm a referee, all right? I'm going to show some signs of calls they make and I want you to tell me what they mean. You ready? Okay. Touchdown. Good. How about this one? Okay, a little bit, little bit softer on that one. That one's a first down. How about this one? Holding. Good. How about this one? Face mask. Good. Okay, here's, here's a difficult one. How about this one? Offside. How about this one? Stop the clock. What about this one? Incomplete. Incomplete. Okay, you guys are ready for some real hard ones? How about this one? Intentional groundings. Okay. How about um how about this one that would be this one that's too many people in the huddle what's this one yeah illegal man downfield okay how about this one who said what touchback Okay, he's a football player from Wheaton football player okay how about this one how about this one you ready Not illegal touching. You know what this is? I didn't until this week either. It's official, though you can look it up, NFL.com. You look at this, this, this rule right here, it's called helping the runner. It is illegal to help a runner, push a runner, pick him up in any way so as to help his forward progress. You ever seen this called? You ever seen it happen? You ever see offensive lineman, right? Someone's running into the pack and and they get stuck and then a big offensive lineman comes and helps, pushes the runner. You ever seen that happen? Happens all the time. They just don't call it. But here it is. Now you know. Helping the runner. Alright? The reason I say that is because it's the title of my sermon this morning. Helping the runner. Now, we aren't here this morning to talk about football. We're here to talk about spiritual realities of our life. But God and Christ, and the church, and faith. And when it comes to the church of God, helping the runner is encouraged. It's illegal in football, though it's never called. In the church, it is encouraged. I think it happens. Some churches, it never happens. hope it happens. In fact, it's not only encouraged, it's commanded that we what? Help the runner. Help the runner. My message this morning is entitled that. I trust that you can see, even as we've begun chapter 12, it's all about this athletic metaphor about running. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The, The picture here is of a runner getting ready to go, stepping in the starting line, awaiting the starter's pistol, Ready to give it his all. The aim of crossing the finish line. Pistol goes off and the runner is off and running his marathon. Straining and struggling the whole way. Now, the Christian life isn't a stroll in the park. It's not a day at the beach. Rather, it's a grueling race. It is a marathon. And we're called to endure the race. Chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance. It's a warning not to stop. It's a call to press on we've said in Hebrews, right? Jesus is better. Let's press on. Let's endure. This has been the theme back from chapter 10, verse 36. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And chapter 12 is there really to help us, give us ways how it is that we can press on and how it is that we can endure Chapter 12, verse 1, first we look back to the saints. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's look back to chapter 11 and see all these saints who endured, and so we ought to follow their example of faith and do so as well. Chapter 12, verse 1, we ought to look at ourselves, right? laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Right? Let's get rid of that. It's going to help us to endure if we get rid of the entanglements. The things that are weighing us down. And let's look with our eye on Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. He's the one that endured the cross. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He's the one that we need to look to And then in verses 3-11, through again, we see more ways to endure the Christian life with all of its discouragements and troubles and when we are tempted to grow weary. Look at this. Consider Jesus. Verse 3, Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at Jesus and how He endured and how He was blasphemed, how He was persecuted, how He suffered. And if He endured, we can follow in His steps because He suffered. 1 Peter 2.21 It's an example for us to follow in his steps. And then verses 4 through 11, just not consider Jesus only, but also consider our own lives. Because we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, verse 4. It could be worse, and it could be discipline, is what verses 5 through 11 speak about. That the troubles and hardships and trials that come could very well be the hand of God conforming us and pruning us so that we bear more fruit. But all these are encouragements when we're tempted to grow weary. And the practicals come really in verse 12 then. Therefore, you can see in light of everything that we've said before, in light of the examples of those that have gone before us, the light of Jesus on the cross, in light of our own battles, and in light of the disciplining hand of God in our life, therefore, verse 12, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Two weeks ago, I looked at these verses. We looked at them, and I emphasized the corporate nature of these verses. See, it's not that you're running a race all by yourself. You're running with many, many others. And there may be times when you need help. And there may be times when you give the help that's needed. You have friends to help you in the race. When you get weak and when you get tiresome and when you get weary, and there may be the you friends who are weak and feeble and lame and you're supposed to strengthen their hands and you're supposed to make straight paths for their feet. In other words, you're supposed to what? Help the runner. That's what you're supposed to do. If you see someone weak in faith, you should go to them. Talk to them. Encourage them. Bring them into your own walk with faith. Walk of faith. Do you see someone who's tired of living righteously? Seeing the wicked prosper like Asaph saw? Tired of being reproached by Christ? Well, God's call upon your life. When you see someone like that, is to go and talk with them and encourage them. And help them see the reward of following Jesus. Yes, we're going to suffer now, but what comes later? Glory comes later, right? Help them to see the joy in your own life when you're struggling and when you're finding difficulty, show them the joy, show them the reward. And that's what verse 12 is. It's a call upon all of our lives to help the runner run. God calls us to have our eyes open and look to others. It's not just a call upon our own lives in our own little world. It's a call for us to really look out and care for the people of the body. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble it's more than even being reactive. It's proactive. Strengthen the hands that are weak. Verse, verse 13, though, says make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame will not be put out of joint but rather be healed. It's, it's, it's preparing the way for some so that they go smooth along the path. It's not just waiting for someone to start faltering. It's, it's smoothing it out so that people can walk well. That was Paul's heart. Romans fourteen thirteen let us determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. In other words, let's so live as to be an encouragement to others to press on in their lives as well. You can live in such a way that you hinder people in their walk. And you can live in such a way that you help people in your walk. By what you do, what you say, it can make an impact. Many, many different ways on many, many different levels that can take place. Let me just pick out two instances. These are just what you can see easily. Suppose your church attendance is pretty spotty at best. Right, what are you teaching? You teaching well? Corporate worship's not really necessary for the Christian life. And it may be that others then see your example and say, "Oh, they can. They don't prioritize Sunday. They don't prioritize worship. Well, I, I don't need to prioritize that. But it may be that you're strong enough in some sense. It may be that they are weak and they're missing the means of grace that so they need to desperately." your life can affect them. Or, or suppose maybe you never speak of spiritual things. Maybe your church attendance is 100%. Maybe you're always there. Maybe you're always at every event, but when it comes to talking, you're always just talking about other things, right? You're, you're, you're talking about football and the calls and the illegal man downfield and the, the touchdown plays. Or, or maybe you're talking about your, um, your hobbies, your activity, anything but the Lord. It could be that you hinder people's ways as well. So you, you pull them away and you distract them. But the call here is to, is to put people in the Lord, in the pathway, and to smooth the path. Parents, you can do this with your children. The way you live. If, if on Sunday at church you're one way, and with the people of God you're one way, and then at home you're another, you're teaching them, you know what? Christianity's a game. And you're teaching them that. You may say and act differently at home, and hypocrisy makes the road pretty bumpy. Hard to drive a car on a cobblestone road. So let's smooth it. Let's make it like concrete and asphalt, right? All right. Well, let's get to my points. I have four points this morning. Practical ways that you can help the runner. First of all, pursue peace. It comes right there, 14, verse A. 14A. First part of it. Pursue peace with all men. Pretty simple command. Peace is the absence of conflict, it's the presence of harmony. The absence of tension, the presence of unity, and we're called, here look at this, it says, pursue peace. Called to be actively engaged in what we can do to promote peace. And I, I, want, I want you all to see how, how engaging this is. This isn't, okay, I'm just going to sit back and not ruffle feathers. No, this is, I'm going to be in it, and I'm going to calm the ripples as they arise. Pursue peace. I want to read for you from uh, Sam Crabtree's excellent book. We've gone over this and our flocks together. I just want to read something I didn't read the other day. Uh, he was a, he's an executive pastor, I think, at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He's a great encourager. His book is called Practicing Affirmation, it's just affirming people, edifying them, building each other up. That's what this book is about. I just want to read an account of what he did. He was a school teacher before he came on pastoral staff. And he said this, "Um, I taught the sixth grade for seven years. I wanted all the fatherless sixth grade boys to be assigned to my classroom. I may not be the perfect role model, but all the other teachers were female. And I hope it's true that I'm a better male role model than any of the female teachers on staff were. One of these students, Wayne, not his real name, was particularly problematic. He would damage the school property, carving up the furniture. If you sat ahead of him, he might write on you or on your clothes. He might cut your hair or your clothing. He once took a cube-shaped eraser, drove stick pins through it in every direction so that the sharp ends protruded like a Sputnik satellite. And then he would toss it at to someone and say, Catch! If you caught it, you'd bleed. And if you'd, Even if you didn't catch it, you might bleed. Wayne was in affirmation deprivation for understandable reasons. I mean, he was a poor student, so he didn't receive any academic accolades. He wasn't musical or athletic. He came from a broken home and was socially not easy for his peers to be around. He wasn't receiving praise anywhere for anything. In my classroom, I positioned his desk closest to my own so I could more readily keep an eye on him. Wayne was in my class and I was his teacher and I wanted him to listen to me, to hear me, so I prayed. Lord, what can I affirm in order to gain a hearing? Is there some small approximation of a God-honoring trait which I can capitalize for Wayne's refreshment and for the good of the class? One day I had assigned some work to the students and I was circulating through the classroom helping those who request assistance. Now, the corner of my eye, which was almost always on Wayne, I noticed that he wasn't doing any work but wasn't killing anybody either. He was daydreaming, gazing out the window with his chin in his hand. I'll take it, I thought. So I maneuvered behind Wayne and laid my hand on his shoulder. His head immediately jerked around. He leaned slightly away from me. I said, what do I do now? I said, Wayne, I can tell you're deep in thought. I like that about a guy. I like a man who's a thinker. I can still see the look on his face at once bewildered and yet savoring it like no pleasure he could ever remember experiencing. His face said, so that's what a compliment feels like. And with that, I patted him on the back and resumed my rounds, still keeping my eye on him. He'd been affirmed for doing something that God does think. God Himself always invites us to reason together. Wayne still wasn't doing his assigned work, but at least he was moving in my direction. His eyes were following me around the room. Whenever he saw that I was about to turn in his direction, he'd quickly snap into his chin in hand posture of the thinker. Affirmation tasted so good that he was lining up for seconds. What was happening? His hatred for teachers was being undercut because he was affirmed by one. Affirmation is a power to gain a hearing for the affirmer, even in the ears of outright rebellious people. Perhaps that hearing is one form of the mercy that comes from God towards the one doing really refreshing. Following our breakthrough, did Wayne immediately take off in his academics and become a valedictorian? No. And that wasn't my immediate aim. On the way to getting him to cooperate in his studies, I aimed at getting him to cooperate at all just to listen to me. We can affirm progress even when it still falls short of mastery. Sometimes we thank God for increments. I had Wayne as a student for only one year and affirmation helped us move in our relationship in the right direction. Now, Sam Crabtree's not talking about establishing peace. He's talking about affirmation. But it, it carries over exactly, right? There was strife in the classroom and so he actively pursued Gaining of peace. So think about what he did. He he longed for peace. He identified the disharmony. He prayed to God for an opportunity for wisdom. The Holy Spirit who was trusting him showed him the way. Saw it, was faithful to walk through it and continue to keep things on the right track. This is what all of us are called to do. We're, We're called to long for peace, identify the disharmony, Plead to God to give us a way to, to create the peace or help the peace. And when the Holy Spirit gives an opportunity, walk through those doors and do what we can to establish peace and cultivate peace wherever we can. That is what verse 14 is about. They worked in the classroom. It can work among the body of Christ. We seek peace and pursue it. And Jesus promised a blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. There's a whole book about that. Peacemakers. Well, there's some question here. Just to get into some technicals about the all-men. Who are the all-men? Some say, well, that's just the church. Just seek peace among the church. Well, I take it to mean everyone. We ought to seek peace for people in the church, outside the church. That ought to be who we are. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And there He's talking about seeking peace with the enemies. And the good news is this, is that in general we can have peace with our enemies. Proverbs 16.7 When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are made to be at peace with him. And at least, if nothing else, we can be the ones seeking peace. So far as it depends upon you, Romans 12.18 Be at peace with all men. So we can pursue it, and and as much as we can, stand before God and say, God, I I sought to make peace. Let's pursue peace. Second, let's pursue purity. Second half of verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the verb is supplied in the first half of this verse, so you can easily read it. Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. As actively as you pursue peace, so also actively pursue purity as well. That's what sanctification means. It means a purity in your life. Being separate from this world. Being Christ-like. in your thoughts and your deeds. Being holy. Being righteous. That's what it means to be pure. And this verse says that we need a purity to stand before the Lord. Jesus again said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You see the the link between purity and, and seeing God and beholding God. We need to have a purity to stand before God. Well, how do we gain that purity? Well, On the one hand, we gain it through faith in Jesus Christ. The great reality of the Gospel, right? By believing in Jesus, we're cleansed by His blood and all our sins are wiped away. Right? We sang it this morning, right? Do we sing about that this morning? We always sing about the Gospel at Rock Valley Bible Church. Kids, if there's ever a time when you think that we have gone through our Sunday morning singing time and we haven't sung the Gospel... You come up and tell me, and if you are right, I'll give you a special prize. But you know it's going to be really hard because we always sing the Gospel. The greatest of all transgressions, the costliest purchase price. Father, Your Son's atoning death was given in payment for mine to buy me back from slavery, to set me free from my chains. There it was. Jesus' death for ours. His death ransomed us from our sins and bought us to be with Him and gave us life. Now, I'll never know Your judgment. My Savior was judged for me. Jesus, Your death and Yours alone has canceled the debt that I owed. You satisfied the law's demands and new life has been given to me. Jesus was judged so we go free is what that stanza says. He canceled our debt that we owe. Jesus satisfied all of our demands and now new life has been given to us. It's the glories of the Gospel, right? That Jesus died to give us a holiness so we might stand before God holy and blameless. That, that is the argument of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's the great high priest who offered His blood and died for us. He offered a better sacrifice than anybody in the Old Testament. He inaugurated and brought in a better covenant. And He gives us access then to God through His sacrifice. Every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It leads us and brings us to God. Ought to thrill our soul? We ought to sing. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it! Redeemed by the blood of a lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child, and forever I am. Think about this: apart from the work of Christ and apart from our faith in His work, the story is far different. We're not coming joyfully to God; we are cowering in terror. We need that holiness to stand before the Lord. We need that sanctification to stand before the Lord. So, let's pursue it. Let's pursue it strongly. Let's pursue the glories of the Gospel in our life to convince us that we stand before God not on our own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, that when you pursue Christ, your whole heart like that, He does a work in your heart to conform you to Himself. You gain a personal, practical holiness which grows and grows and grows and grows. And in some great degree, that's the holiness that we have before we stand before the Lord. Though we don't boast in our righteousness, God conforms us as we reflect upon His Gospel all the time. Because the more you see and experience Jesus, the more like Him you want to be, and the more your heart will sing like His, and the more the things of earth will grow strangely dim, we sang a couple of weeks ago, in the light of His glory and grace. And it all predicates upon meditating, thinking upon the glories of what Christ has done for our souls. Well, that's how we pursue purity. So, pursue peace. Pursue purity. Now, verse 15, let's pursue grace. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. The grace of God is there to be had. Jesus has offered His salvation freely to all who would come to Him by faith. And yet, many come short of the grace of God the reality of life here on earth. Though God offers the grace, many reject it. I saw a good illustration of this uh, a little over a month ago, opening day for the Cubs and Sox. Many of you know Tom Witek organized. Is he not here today? Charlene? Well, we, we miss him. But anyway, Tom, Tom organized a, a great outreach of, of passing out tracts at uh, the opening day for the Cubs, and Sox games. And uh, so this is just an example of one card. It's got Cubs Trivia on the front. It's got a short gospel tract on the back. And uh, Tom and Chuck Dean and uh, Asher, you were there with us, right? No, he's not here today. Is he sick? That's why. Anyway, we, we were out there and, and passing out these tracts and um, just passed out several thousand of them and to people. But what astonished me, I thought about this offer of grace, is how many people refused... These little cards. And I just thought about, you know what? We have the words of life on these cards. I mean, this little card can change someone's life. And, and handing that out, many people just refused and didn't want any part of it. And I thought, boy, how how like the grace of God is that? And offer, I'm not trying to sell anything. We weren't trying to make any gimmicks. We weren't trying to do anything. We're just trying to give them that they could take it and they could put it in their pocket. But I don't know how it's like. I've been in crowds like that. You know, I've not, I've not taken things... As well, but it, but it is a, a good illustration of, of just how people refuse the grace of God. And I think overall, I'm guessing 20% was my rate. I mean, about, about a fifth of the people I offered this card to actually then took it. That's how few wanted them. I mean, that's how people are with the grace of God, that's how people are with the church. They, they They think that coming to Jesus is going to well there's strings attached what's what's, what's what do you, what do you want from me if I can't earn it if I don't want it it's the American way right they think we're trying to sell them something we're trying to change them, we're trying to change them for the better. I also noticed something else when I was out there is that uh, if I gave the card to somebody and somebody behind because generally I stood there and I go these waves of people were coming if I gave a card to somebody and someone behind saw that I gave the card and they didn't die and it was okay and they walked right on, they were like more likely to take it as well. And, and, and so that like, if I had a group of people like maybe crossing the street all together, kind of like like the light turns red or green or whatever and they can walk. And so they're walking here. If I get that first person, I know my percentage is going to go way up because, oh, they didn't die. I suppose I can take that. What is that? And then if someone takes it a lot of times, they're like, oh, can I have some? Can I have some? But if that person, like first person refuses... Good luck. You're, you're just out for that whole group. There's no way you're gonna get it. And I thought, oh, how important it is to get that first person. So that when I'm here, you know, eye contact is really good. A smile, right? I'm looking like real, like I'm not goofy or anything. And you know, maybe a little, little, little rough, ruffling here. I found that help. if I'm just going like this, it doesn't help. But if I like grab something, that that helps. You see, you learn all this stuff. But you're trying. It's trial and error, right? You're, you're trying though just to get it in their hands. And I thought of this text, how how good it is. Is that you're trying to, to, to see to it. I'm trying to work hard right, so that, so that people get the grace. And that's what, what verse 15 is talking about here. See to it that no one comes short to the grace of God. right? We need to work and we need to labor so that people don't come short of the grace of God. It's especially appropriate for the original reader's coming out of the Judaism and into the church, many of them hadn't come all the way to Christ. They had, they had heard about Him. They'd experienced the fellowship in the church. They'd heard the good Word of God. They'd seen the work of the Holy Spirit. They'd witnessed the love of the brethren, yet they're still on the fringe. And the writer says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That was the danger they had. The danger they had was going back into their Judaism, coming short of the grace, returning their Judaism complete with its sacrifices and priests and festivals and feasts. And the call of verse 15 is to do whatever we can so that they receive the grace of God, so that they come all the way and they don't fall short of the, the grace of God. So what do we need to do? We need to talk of grace. We need to rejoice in grace. We need to demonstrate grace. We need to extend grace. We need to make grace the the theme of our song of Christ coming for us completely unmerited. But all our salvation our glory is is in Him. I want you to see also though that that this call of verse 15 is to the entire body. Look carefully the way He says this command. He says, See to it, that no one comes short of the grace of God. He doesn't say, make sure you don't come short of the grace of God. I mean, that, that's true. And it's called for each of us to be diligent to, to understand and embrace His grace. But the wording of this makes the application far more reaching and far more broad. He says this, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it, comes the Greek word episkopao which we get Episcopal, which comes from two words, epi and scopas. Epi upon, scopas to scope out, to look. To look upon. This is an overseer. Epi upon, scopas looking out, an overseer. This calls for all of us to be overseers. Now, leaders in the church, elders and deacons and pastors, we are overseers. Right? You get up on a high place and you survey the flock and you're overseeing them and you're finding the trouble one you're going after them. Well, Yes, that is a task to the leaders of the church. But it's also a task for all of us. We're all called to oversee everybody else. He's not talking here to the leaders of the church. He's talking to everyone. And we all have responsibility to oversee each other. And where's the responsibility? Responsibility is to help so that no one comes short of the grace of God. I hope you can see here how this is right. What is this again? Help the runner. I hope you can see how we're, we're helping the runner and we're, we're trying to help so that people come to the grace of God. Do what you can to bring people along, to show them the glories of the gospel, the glories of the Messiah. Think about everything we have in Jesus, we have by grace. I mean, the whole argument in the book of, of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better. He's better being than the angels, and we get him by grace. He's a better leader than Moses, and we get him by grace. He gives a better rest than Joshua and we get it without even fighting. He's a better priest than Aaron because He offered up Himself and He is strong. He offered the perfect sacrifice that no other priest could do and it's all, all by His grace for us. He, brought, he gave us a better covenant. There was God saying, I will put My laws within them and I'm the one that will change their hearts. I will do that. And he entered a heavenly tabernacle, not just an earthly tabernacle. And we get to follow in his footsteps into heaven by grace. So believe in him and trust in him. Sad result, though, when people turn their back on Jesus and fall short of the grace of God, bitterness comes. I've spoken with enough people who have come to church where the grace of God wasn't dominant in the body. They're burned by the church some way. So maybe someone sinned against them or judged them or said some harsh things to them. Maybe they've given much to the church, devoted much of their their sacrificial time to the church, and all they had to show for it was people who hurt them. As a result, they want nothing to do with the church. Not now, not ever, and have turned bitter and sour against the church. And what happened? Well, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it may be defiled. I believe those things are connected. When someone comes short of the grace of God, doesn't fully embrace and understand the salvation that's in Christ, when you have a body then that's not looking for people to come and know and experience the grace, then they fall away and they get bitter at the whole experience. promised of the joys of grace and yet not seeing it and then going back to the works-based religion. Um, how many of you are aware that the world was supposed to end yesterday? Okay, most every single one of you. Um, I want you to think about some of the followers of Harold Camping. I want you to think about a guy named uh, Robert Fitzpatrick. He's a retired worker, lives in Staten Island, New York. Um, through the teaching of Harold Camping, he was convinced the world was going to end May 21st, 2001... He wrote a 350-page book entitled The Doomsday Code. God is warning us through the Bible. You can purchase it on Amazon. It's still out there. In the book, he thanked Errol Camping for his teaching. He sent a copy of this book to every embassy and every consulate in New York that he could. Just everybody wants to give this thing out. And as the day approached, he spent his life savings on this ad campaign to put billboards and signs and trucks up all over the world. Well, he spent the day yesterday with a reporter who logged some of his activities. And the reporter blogged this whole activity, said uh, he treated yesterday like any other day, except he didn't do his dishes or water his plants. What's the need, right? At 3 o'clock, he went to visit his 90-year-old mother to say goodbye to her. And he took the ferry to Manhattan, was in Times Square by 6 p.m., awaiting the rapture. My guess is he probably had his shirt on, probably had his hats on, probably had everything like that. 6 p.m. passed... Cheers erupted from the crowds of people in Times Square. And he just looked down his Bible and read Genesis 7 verse 4. I will blot out from the face of land every living thing that I've made. He's applying that thinking that was going to happen last night at 6 o'clock. And he said to the reporter, I don't understand why nothing has happened. I, I did what I had to do. I did what the Bible said. And dejected, he went away, went home said, I obviously haven't understood it properly because we're still here. Well, Let's just say I'm surprised that nothing happened. Everything in the Bible indicated it. All right, now I want you to think, what's going to happen to Robert Fitzpatrick? I don't know. He may still stay loyal to Harold Camping, wherever Harold, however he gets out of this, or however he explains this away, or whatever he does. I, I don't know. Because there still are, by the way, some Branch Davidians still faithful to David Koresh, by the way. But, what may happen, I wouldn't be surprised if this scenario falls out. He'll carry on for the next few days or weeks or months in a fog. Embarrassed to the friends that he warned. Maybe ashamed at getting things so wrong. But then maybe he'll start thinking about the, the, the people who've he followed these teachers so blindly in fact, Tony Sinelli was here uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, a month ago. I'm not sure how long ago it was. Time flies, I guess. He uh, he was telling me um, at dinner, he, he pastors a church in Pleasant Hill, which is uh, 40 minutes from Oakland, something like that. The Family Radio Headquarters in Oakland, and when Harold Camping predicted the rapture in 1994 didn't happen, he had some people come to church there, and so he interacted with them, and... And the guy, he said, basically was in a fog and had no idea kind of really what took him. And maybe Robert Fitzpatrick will kind of be here. But I wouldn't be surprised he separates himself from family radio and maybe even starts to get embittered against them because of all this money that he spent to follow this false teacher and it's all gone and wasted. If he can write a 350-page book, maybe he'll write another 350-page book about the delusion of the cult and maybe... Help get some income that way because he doesn't have anything now. Now I want you to think about church. There are those who come into church and fall short of the grace of God. They never quite get it. They stumble over something Jesus said or something they did, get burned in the church, leave bitter and angry, and then they spread it. Right? I mean this this happens right here. I'm not sure if Robert Fitzpatrick will get to that point. He might, he might not, he might just be complacent. But it says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Because that can spread and can defile others and infect others. I've heard you, I'm have heard sure you've heard it happening in other churches. We've tasted a bit of it at Rock Valley Bible Church and it hurts and it's hard. But it happens in church. Often, I remember attending a church... Um, we lived in Decal. We didn't go to church, but for several social functions, we were there—weddings and things of that sort. Where a man became bitter against the church and sought to harm the church, right? Many be defiled. He, he owned the lot next door. As I recall, I'm not sure. I think, in some sense, he was part of the church at, at one point. I don't know any of the details. I never saw any of the details, but somehow, some way, the church, I think, was seeking to purchase his property or a portion of his property or something, and it it fell through for some reason. I'm not exactly sure. But the man became embittered um, at the actions of the pastor, accused him of lying. Now, he didn't just say it. He erected a large sign on his property right outside the main entrance to the church building. Kind of, kind of because the, the building was like this. He came in on this side and his property was, but a, you know, a car's laying over. A big sign there talking about what a scoundrel the pastor is and how cheatful he was and how deceitful he was and this big sign for all to see. He said he would take down the sign as soon as the pastor got kicked out of the church. That's trying to cause some trouble. Um, I looked online, by the way, and the pastor's still there at the church. So he wrote it through, and so the people who weren't embittered helped and supported him through this troublesome time where this guy had this placard. But that's, that's how it happens. People become so embittered that they do these things to cause trouble. All that guy's trying to do is disrupt and crush the church. Or I heard of another church, a friend of mine, a man in the church became embittered against the pastor for some reason. Again, I don't know the details of everything happening, but he used to attend the church. But uh, now he merely stands outside the church every Sunday morning to protest against the pastor's presence there at the church. He said he would come, he said he would come into the church building when the pastor left. But until then, he's going to stand outside the church and protest whenever the, as long as the pastor was there. So he was outside the church, never coming in for 15 years. He did this. He had a lawsuit and all this kind of stuff, and the pastor there was trying to just deal with this and deal with his elders, and it kind of just was wearing him down. Most of the people in the church thought he was the doorman, but on one time he had a sign on him that said, No, I'm not the doorman. But he would stand there in front of the church. And I remember talking to my pastor friend who was there. He said, you, You'd think at some point he'd just give it up. But let me tell you, that kind of shows you how strong this root of bitterness can be in people. When you come short of the grace of God. And it can be defiling to many. So don't come short. Do what you can. Work hard so that others don't come short of the grace of God. So, church family, let's pledge ourselves today to pursue grace. Pursue grace. Let it rain, our church. All right. Pursue peace, pursue purity, pursue grace. Finally, verse Verses uh, 16 and 17. Pursue God. That's where we come to the story of Esau who fell short, faced some bitterness, faced some defilement. I think that's the context of why he gets in here. But I think his fundamental problem is he wasn't seeking God. He was seeking his own. Verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau's story is told in Genesis 25. We don't need to turn there, I'll just summarize the story for you. He was a man's man. He loved the hunting, he loved the outdoors life, he loved the rugged life. Jacob, his brother, preferred to stay at home, being a peaceful man. Now on one occasion, Esau had been out in the field working hard, maybe hunting, we're not exactly sure what he was doing, but doing some kind of manly thing out there, working real hard, getting up a nice sweat, getting real dirty, getting real hungry, and he came back and he said he was famished. You know the feeling, right? You work long, you work hard, you work up a great appetite. And so Esau came home, and according to his nature, Jacob had been home cooking. He cooked up some nice red lentil stew, put some char- Put some, uh some tomatoes in there, put some beans in there, was cooking it up. And Esau, as he came in the door, I'm sure he smelled what was cooking. I'm sure he saw what was cooking. And he said, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I'm famished. All right? Typical grunt stuff of the outdoorsmen. right? Give me a swallow of that red stuff. I'm famished. Uh, uh. Well, Jacob refused him. He said, first, tell me your birthright. Esau is incredibly hungry. Listen now. he reasons. He says, Behold, I'm about to die. So what use is this birthright to me? Newsflash, he wasn't about to die. If you're walking in from outside, you can last another month easy without any food, okay? You die of starvation only when you've been not been eaten for several months. And yet, such was the fickleness of Esau. It's what we need to learn from him, not to be fickle like him. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't seeking eternity. He was seeking the here and now. So Jacob said, Swear to me. And then those dreadful words. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now this is a big deal. To us it might not be a big deal. To them it's a big deal. Because the birthright's everything. The inheritance comes by the way of the one who has the birthright. The blessing comes by the one who has the birthright. And by giving it over for a pot of stew, Esau is forsaking all the blessings in his life, basically. From that moment on, Esau forsook the blessings of God. And we really see that come to pass when Jacob receives the blessing of the oldest son rather than Esau. That story is told in Genesis 27. Again, we're not going to turn there, but I'll summarize it for you. Isaac knew that he was about to die. Eyes were getting dim. Couldn't see very well. Maybe a glaucoma. I'm not exactly sure. He brought Esau near requested that he go hunt some game and prepare a savory dish for him to eat such a dish that he loves. And then after I'm full and satisfied, I will bless you, Esau, before I die. Rachel overheard the conversation, schemed with Jacob to deceive Isaac so that Jacob might receive the blessing in in place of Esau. So she cooked a meal for Jacob, Jacob brought it to Isaac to eat. Jacob put on some of Isaac's clothes, made him smell like that, tried to deceive him. And when Isaac had finished eating, he was deceived. <clears throat> he said, the voice of Jacob, but the skin is like Esau. And so he went ahead and blessed him anyway. And thus, Jacob stole a blessing from Esau, his brother, and then quickly departed. Almost as soon as he went out, Esau came in. The game that he prepared, and Isaac then related to him everything that happened, and we read in Genesis 27-34, when Esau heard the words of his fathers, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me, also, O my father. Okay, he comes in with a great and bitter cry. Bless me, O my father, please! Could have been heard by the next door neighbors, even if they were on a farm. It could have been heard by the next door neighbors, such as a great and exceeding bitter cry. In fact, Isaac three times said that, "Bless me, my father! Isn't there a blessing you have for me? Oh, can't you have just one blessing for me, if my father? Oh, bless me, bless me, oh my father!" Three times, begging and pleading and crying out loudly. And what was he to receive? I oh, received a prophecy about him, but didn't receive the blessing. So, Esau, as it says in Genesis 27, verse 38, lifted up his voice and wept. Well, that's the background to verses 16 and 17. Let's read them again. I think they'll all make sense. Let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau was a godless person. That's where I get the point. Pursue God. Because his fundamental problem was that he wasn't pursuing God. He was pursuing his own pleasures. He was a godless person whose thoughts were upon the here and now rather than upon the Lord. The very thing that Esau failed to do was pursue God. If Esau had been thinking of the things above, he would not have sold his birthright. And if Esau had been thinking of the things above, he would have received his blessing. Instead, all Esau received was tears. Found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So desperately he wanted to change things, but once it was done, it was impossible to change, impossible to revoke. Couldn't be done. In fact, I think that's the best way to take this phrase about repentance here in verse 17. We found no place for repentance. It wasn't so much that he was trying to repent of his own sins and his own wrongs. As much as it was, he was, he was seeking that, that circumstances could be changed so that he could receive the blessing. Oh my father, can't you bless me? Also, Can't, you, can't we change this thing? I think that's the idea. He was seeking Isaac's repentance. He was, he was seeking for some type of change in a situation that could never come about because it was impossible to done. And the warning comes to us. So learn the anguish of Esau in the things that take place that can never be restored. Particularly, verse 16 singles out this issue of immorality. Now, we have no biblical warrant that Esau was sexually immoral. It's what this word talks about. Sexual immorality, pornography, fornication, all types of sexual sin. We we don't have any indication of that. It could be the best way to read this is there would be no immoral person or godless people like Esau. Now, some extra-biblical literature has some immorality that Esau committed. We don't exactly know. But immorality, sexual immorality, is such that you can cross a line and you can't get it back. David and Bathsheba crossed a line couldn't get it back. Because things come about like pregnancy, like sexually transmitted disease, like in some places even forms of cancer. Try what you like. You can't reverse those things. And I don't care how hard you cry and I don't care how hard you try to, try to come before the Lord. You can't reverse it. And such was the anguish of Esau Sexual sin, by the way, is a sin of seeking the here and now rather than seeking the Lord. It's seeking earthly pleasure rather than seeking the heavenly reward. It's seeking the bowl of chili now rather than the marriage supper of the lamb later. Esau tried to change circumstances. They can't be changed. Many tears have flowed from those who have lived immoral lives wishing that things might change, but they can't. That's why we need to pursue God. God. Those things don't come about. And the idea here, even in the bigger context, is verse 15. Don't come sure of the grace of God. That The bitterness doesn't arise. That you're godless. That then you take actions that you regret that can't be changed and revoked at all again. So it's pursue God today, and pursue God now, and pursue God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. So I close with this. Let's just just help the runner by reminding ourselves of the importance of these things to pursue peace among us, to, to let grace reign among us, to glory in the Gospel, the grace of God, to pursue Him with all of our heart. Well, let's pray. Father, you've taught us this morning by negative example in many ways. I would pray that we would feel the weight of Esau in his life. God I pray that you protect us. I pray for those who have transgressed. I know sins can be wiped away as David was. He was a forgiven man post 2nd Samuel 12. He was a righteous man to stand before you and yet there were consequences. And Lord, would pray that You would help us to steer away from those consequences, burn into our hearts and our minds the the troubles and the hardships of those who sin in this way. God, and out of love for You and out of love for our own souls, keep us on the right path. And and Father, I would pray that we would catch even the corporate nature of these words. It's not just us looking at our own life, but it's us looking at the lives of others and and doing what we can to to keep them away from danger too, to make the phone call, to make the visit, God, to grab and snatch people away from fire, even as Jude says. So I pray, O oh Lord, You would help us in these things. With sobering words, but may we as a church God, be so saturated with grace and delight in the Gospel, for sins forgiven in Jesus, that we be protected. That's how You work. So help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.